WNRI's Upfront. The opinions expressed represent those only of the panel and callers and do not reflect the views of WNRI and its owners. Telephone lines are now open at 7690600. And now, let's join the Upfront panel. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Upfront program for this um, Friday morning. And uh, we've got a busy little morning to take care of. On our live line is uh, Robert Martin from uh, Crossroads Real Estate Group. I'm going to check to see if he's uh, he's uh, in focus here. Are you there, Bob? I am, Roger. Okay. And also um, uh, on our live line this morning uh, via, uh, I think it's going to be via North Carolina, is uh, State Senator uh, Roger uh, Pickard. He'll be joining us as, on our uh, program, and we'll be chatting with him about what's going on in the Rhode Island General Assembly and um, and so on and so forth. Hope you can join us as we continue to move along here on uh, on this Friday. Are you ready for our real estate question? It's uh, right in front of me, Mr. Martin. Okay. All right, it says here, um, my wife and I are purchasing a condominium. The seller has accepted our offer and we have signed a contract. But we have just been told that the contract has to be presented to the Condo Association to waive the right of first refusal. What is this? And uh, could we lose the condo because of this? Well, the, the, the answer to the last part of that is yes. Um, what the right of first refusal is, and it's not only in condos. There are, we see it less and less now, but... Um, we do see that also in, in new subdivisions, particularly if the builder or the developer is selling off the land. So basically what it is is, um, uh, and then where I live, they've had it and they just recently waived it after many, many years. So when someone is purchasing a property, uh, they're not so much concerned about who's purchasing it, but they're concerned about the price. So um, a, a good example that I can give you is uh, it's only happened in, in my office once, and it wasn't a condo. It was a subdivision, but it applies the same way. Uh, there was a home that had been foreclosed on in, a, let's call it a prestigious uh, subdivision in Lincoln. Uh, the home was beat up, and the bank foreclosed on it. And um, one of my agents actually got the listing. And, um, well, no, excuse me, we had the buyer. And um, this buyer offered to buy it. And... Um, it would have sold at substantially less than comparable properties in that area because it was beat up and it was bank owned and whatnot. Um, when we presented this um, to the association, um, they voted to purchase the home themselves uh, <clears throat> only because they did not want to see a property in their neighborhood, if you will, sell and, in their opinion, drag down the prices. So they actually exercised their right of fifth refusal and purchased the price, purchased the house at the contract price. So the seller got the same amount of money. So it's, it really doesn't affect the seller much. Um, and they purchased the property, um, renovated it with their with the association money, and then put it back on the market for substantially higher price. It runs the same way in condos uh, right now. I don't know of anywhere that they would exercise the right of first refusal, but let's go back a few years when the market had dipped, um, and um, particularly with condos, they became attractive for people to purchase them and rent them. Um, and um, when you get to a certain amount of rentals on a condo in particular, 
over 10%. It affects the mortgageability of units uh, <clears throat> and the viability of the complex. So, um, although I don't know, well, I know of one where I lived that they, they did, but um, when they saw these prices coming that way, they chose, in a condo association that hypothetically could say, no, we're going to purchase these at this price. Um, we'll do the rentals, um, or we'll, we'll fix them up if it happens to be a property that's beat up, and we'll put it back on the market. So it's not that unusual, although it becomes uh, less and less of a problem, but it, it's a deed restriction. And what, what's going to happen with this gentleman, and I'm guessing that nothing is going to happen. They'll waive their right because values are up, but they, they literally present that to their board of directors or whatever the organization is. And they actually sign a document um, that releases the right of the association to purchase. That gets recorded, and, and if that's the case, this gentleman can move forward and purchase the, the, the condo. So, I don't know if there's uh, uh, such a thing as a Fair Housing Act or something like that, but it well, almost almost sounds like uh, the, if there's a restriction on who can buy, it almost sounds like um, you uh, you could bring a um, a case uh, against the condo association for discrimination correct um however it's been upheld um and i think the associations if in fact they which is why they do it very judiciously it would have to be something that um i, I would say if something's selling at fair market value and someone were to exercise the right of first refusal and they would purchase it there certainly could be a case there that they want to keep the individual out but um, in the event and in the cases where something is selling that's abnormal to the, the you know, into that group uh, and they purchase it well below market and then put it back on, theoretically they could sell it to the same person. It just would be for a lot more money. Um, I'm not an attorney, but I know that over the years the right of first refusal has been upheld. Um, and, uh, but you have to obviously use it judiciously, and I think that's why fewer and fewer um, associations have it. We see it more now in where someone, let's say, is developing a, just put a road in, and they've got 30 lots to sell, and the person that, that owns the subdivision, um, who's not necessarily the builder, he's the developer, and he's selling lots off. Well, initially they sell them, let's say, below market, just to get the thing going and to recover some money. But usually there's a restriction right on there that says, hey, if you're buying three of the lots up front and then you decide that you want to speculate and resell them, um, I have for a certain period of time, if you're not going to build a house, the original developer has a right to buy them back for whatever you were selling them for, and therefore they could hang on to them or whatnot. That's generally where we see it now. And um, But we... I think more and more places are just waiving that right. But obviously where he's buying, it, it's still there, and it's, it's something he's going to have to deal with. But in this marketplace, where the market, top of the market, there really is no reason for an association to, to exercise that right. They, they, I'm sure they'll waive it. And is uh, the market still as, uh, as vibrant as it, it's been uh, for the past months? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's not much what I would say... Um, real appealing, you know, dead center where, where it appeals to most people, you know, uh, available. Uh, we're still looking at about a two-and-a-half-month inventory where a six-month inventory is considered um, um, even between buyer and seller. So what, what we, we are seeing is, um, let's say, on 
on homes within a certain target area, dollar-wise, if you will, or certain uh, areas of certain towns, we're, we're seeing multiple offers come in. And, um, and then in some cases it goes to what we call highest and best. So it's not unusual to have a, a new listing and, and have an open house, let's say, and, and have it flooded with people and end up with four offers some of which could even be higher than the asking, um, and, and that's happening. But what we're also running into now is um, when someone really wants a house, and let's say it's on for 250 and they offer 275 because they want it, uh, we're seeing now in some cases that when, when they go to get their financing, the appraiser cannot justify the 275 price. And we're seeing that the, the appraisals are not always coming in where, uh, where the people are paying. But still a very very hot market definitely a seller's market um it, particularly for what we call the empty nester if someone's been hanging on and you know either going to move out of the area go into an apartment uh go into um, an in-law with their, their children if they're all, it's it's a, it is the time to sell the property well that's interesting uh, so some buyers are willing to pay more than <laughs> Then the banks are willing to lend, right, uh, just to get the house, huh? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, because it, it almost gets into the area of, of speculation. Mm -hmm. and, and the lenders are concerned because they lend a certain percentage of, of value to what they feel the property is worth. And it's happened a couple of times in, in the last month to us where, um, you know, it, it just didn't appraise. In which case, in, in, in some cases where the buyers have money, they just pay the difference in cash. Or if they don't, which is more the case in our area, then the buyers and the sellers have got to either come together and, and agree on a certain price, or it just kind of goes by the wayside and the property gets put back on the market. All right. Thank you, Bob. Always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, talking real estate is an interesting topic because um, I guess everybody's involved in real estate one way or the other, whether they rent, whether they buy, whether they sell. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good week, Roger. Will do. Bob Martin from Crossroads Real Estate Group. Senator Roger Pickard joins us in a moment. There's a church nearby where members are kind and friendly. May we invite you to attend services at the Cumberland Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a church where you can hear the gospel, believe in Christ, repent, confess, and be baptized. Join us this week for our prayer Bible study Wednesday at 7 p.m. and Sunday services at 1 our sermons are understandable to grow you in faith. Find us at 91 Pine Swamp Road, across from the gift shop, Route 114, where Diamond Hill Road becomes Pine Swamp Road. Again, we are the Cumberland Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, inviting you to join us on your journey to salvation. Services conducted by Pastor Marcus Warren. The Roast House, home of the $6.99 to $9.99 luncheon. It's daily, Monday through Saturday from 1130 until 3 o'clock. For $6.99, listen what you can get. A nice hot open face sandwich. Your choice of roast beef, roast turkey, roast ham, freshly sliced at $6.99. And of course, you get a choice of one side. For $6.99, new to the menu, chicken and chips, luncheon portion of our famous crispy batted boneless fried chicken. Served again with your choice of uh, sauce, fried Fries and coleslaw, six ninety nine, and one more six ninety nine. One fresh French dip roast beef sandwich, five ounces of thinly sliced roast beef on a bulky roll, served with the dipping sauce and served with the one side and the deli pickle spear, six ninety nine. And the sides include French fries, fresh chips, coleslaw, vegetable, or soup of the day. You can't beat the luncheon special at the Roast House Restaurant.
Looking your best is the top priority at Fusion Hair Studio with talented, experienced stylists. Then the pampering begins. Enjoy a glass of wine or a cup of coffee with a spectacular view of the Woonsocket Falls Dam like you've never seen it before. You need not pay a queen's ransom to look and be treated like one. Call Fusion Hair Studio for an appointment, 401-597-5996. And attention hairstylists, rental stations are available. Call 597-5996 and ask for Beth or Lori. Fusion Hair Studio, next to the Woonsocket Falls Dam, South Main Street, Woonsocket. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. Okay, let's get back to uh, the panel. And uh, on this uh, Friday, after Bob Martin from Crossroads Real Estate Group, we next go to our, uh, our I guess you'd call it our State House General Assembly report. And this is uh, something that's uh, put together by uh, Lorraine Corey here at WNRI. And she makes contact with the various senators and um, representatives uh, from uh, the Rhode Island General Assembly that serve this particular region, Northern Rhode Island. And we uh, chat with them about uh, the progress or lack of progress in the General Assembly. On our live line today, not in studio with us, uh, but uh, nonetheless um, honoring his commitment to broadcasting the events of the State House is State Senator Roger Picard. How are you doing out there, Senator Picard? I'm doing very well. How are you today, Roger? I'm, I'm excellent. So where are you? Um, if uh, you're on the telephone, you obviously are not uh, in the immediate location. So are you, um, are you on the road on assignment? I'm in North Carolina. I am attending a conference by the National Conference of Insurance Legislators. Mm-hmm. And what it is is a conference dealing with the various insurance products that are out there, um, health insurance, which... Um, Everybody's looking at right now, property and casualty insurance, all those type of things. And the various um, agents come down here and industries come down here and they make their presentations and they interact with them. And the reason I do this is the committee I chair, uh, the Commerce Committee, a lot of this type of activity comes in front of my committee. And since I don't deal with insurance every day um, from like a, a professional perspective, I attend these conferences um, when I can just to uh, understand conceptually what's the thought process behind a lot of the products that uh, my constituents purchase, what's going on behind the, uh, the, the driving forces behind the industry. Um, so when people come and testify in front of our committee uh, dealing with these um, insurance bills that we get put in every year, at least we have a framework of an idea of what's going on. So this is an industry-sponsored, uh, this is the insurance industry meeting and, and going over uh, the issues that face them. And you're sort of like an observer who has to deal with legislation in the Senate uh, that uh, comes before you so that you better understand it, huh? Actually, it's, the, it's a little bit reversed, Roger. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Conference of Insurance Legislators is of itself its own body. It's... Um, each state that participates in this um, sends a, a certain dollar amount to this organization. So it's run by, it's it's a body of legislators uh, who run this organization. Uh-huh. Um, and then the insurance comes in. So so it's... So the insurance so people are guests of this uh, conference then. Right. <laughs> no, they know we're getting together. That All the legislators from across the country who deal with insurance... Um, if they have the opportunity to come to these conferences, to come here, so the industry can come here and 
and look and listen to what legislators are, are hearing and what they're talking about. And um, sometimes there's model legislation that's proposed, meaning that um, there's insurance concepts or ideas that filter throughout the country that might do well in other um, states. Um, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but each state is allowed to control its own insurance industry. Mm-hmm. It's not federally regulated as much as many other things. So there has some cohesiveness amongst the states. Um, this organization was organized, so discussions and communications could be done. Um, so we don't have no, 50 different types of perspectives out there that would drive the industry crazy. I mean, each state has its own uniqueness, and um, that's fine. But overall, the, the general um, body of work that gets done throughout the country has some type of organization for it. And that's why this organization was created. Now, we're not doing an interview on this conference, uh, but I do have a co- one or two more questions that might relate sure. to it. So how, how do they break down health insurance against, uh, let's say, car insurance? Is it handled at different, different um, meetings, or uh, do you yes. just talk about yes. insurance in general? No, no, it's a, it's a four-day um, four um, conference, and there's multiple breakout sessions. So there's property and casualty, there's uh, health care, there's a... Um, I'm looking at my book here. There's uh, federal regulations, international insurance issues committees. So it goes on for four days. So it's not combined. So you do have concentration of of, of um, perspective, if you will, towards each part of um, the insurance um, industry. And so is, health insurance, uh, is health insurance, is health insurance the, it seems to me, as a layman, that would be the top topic, health insurance? Oh, uh, well, well, considering what's going out there right now, yes. And it, you would think it would be, um, but when I come down here, even though I, that's one of the, I tend the most, uh, property and casualty is a big one, uh, long-term investments in, for retirement and, and that type of insurance, long-term care, that's another big one. Um, the the re the reinsurance for insurance companies that's a big one. So right now, yeah, healthcare is, is big. It's been big for the past couple of years. But these other ones aren't aren't as uh, they're just as important. So it doesn't diminish the other ones. It's just this one has the focus right now. And it's uh, I bet you there are a lot of instances where. Um uh, short of going to these types of meetings, uh, a lot of legislators back in their home state who are on committees that deal with, uh, for instance, uh, insurance, uh, they don't know much about insurance. And it's very tough, I guess, sometimes to uh, to uh, enact laws or protect uh, the industry or, or protect the consumer when you don't know a hell of a lot about the, uh, the industry in the first place. And that's true. And that's why I come here. I used to have a a person in my committee, there were two of them, there was um, Billy, Will, Billy Will Asker, God rest his soul, and Senator Bates, God rest his soul, both who are in the uh, insurance businesses, Mr. Bates more than Billy Will Asker. But they were very knowledgeable about this industry and the background of the industry, and so they sat on the committee, so we kind of relied a lot on listening to what they had to say. But we lost that resource, and, um, and the people who sit on my committee now, or sit on the Commerce Committee, Again, understand the insurance uh, industry conceptually, but it's not what they do for a living. So it does, this fills a hole um, coming to these uh, conferences for knowledge. 
All right, uh, we're going to talk about the uh, General Assembly in, in, in general in a few seconds, uh, okay. the Senate. But I uh, wanted to ask you, um, since you are on the road, and I'm going to be going on the road next Friday myself, flying and staying in a hotel and so forth, have you sensed anything about the uh, coronavirus um, uh, issue uh, at the airport, uh, on aircraft, uh, at your hotel, at the conference, or... Uh, is it uh, kind of like uh, a subject that's out there but not affecting uh, you as a traveler this week? Uh, well, no, that's not true. Um, it, the, the direct answer is yes. Have I sensed this, uh, uh, what's going on out there and is affecting my travel? Sure. I mean, little nuances like you get on the plane, you watch people take out all their white naps and, and wipe down around them and wipe down the... Uh, they, you know, the flip-down board from in front of their seat so they can put their uh, computer on. Um, there's hand sanitizer, additional hand sanitizer all throughout the, like, the hotel that I'm here. The, the gym has uh, more hand sanitizer, that type of thing. Even like I was on the plane yesterday uh, afternoon coming down and somebody started sneezing. And you can see all the heads on the plane turn. So, it, yeah, it's on top of everybody's mind. Even last night at one of the meetings, the, the coronavirus, how it's affecting the tourism industry, how it's affecting our cancellation of conferences throughout the country. It's on everybody's line um, top, uh, as a discussion. And then you can see how it affects each individual person, they themselves, and how they handle themselves in, in a public environment. Well, the reason I bring that up is that while you're attending this conference... Uh, at the same time, I'm attending a, a conference. I was there yesterday. I'm going back today over the weekend at the uh, Sheridan Framingham uh, in Framingham, Massachusetts. And uh, this is uh, for the Rotary Club and incoming presidents of the Rotary Club uh, and their training. But the reason I'm bringing it up is I, too, uh, see how the hotel uh, is reacting to um, to the coronavirus um, with the Perel uh, uh, lotions, uh, uh, with how they're treating uh, the the distribution of uh, of water and coffee cups and things like that. So uh, I guess uh, if you're on the road, uh, you're you're seeing it, uh, and I guess I'll see it on the plane next Friday too. Yeah, yeah, people are aware. Um very much so, and taking precautions, rightfully so. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Upfront Program, and we uh, do these uh, weekly interviews with our state reps, our state senators, and um, sort of like a funnel, I get very general uh, in our uh, first questions, and and then uh, maybe uh, hammer down to a few particular bills. But uh, as I've talked with some of the legislators so far, uh, Senator Picard, uh, because this is an election year, um, I uh, ask the question, uh, do you sense um, that uh, everybody is uh, kind of uh, staying away from the uh, hot-button issues and are uh, only tackling issues that they, uh, they have to tackle uh, because uh, who wants to get involved with uh, the marijuana issue or abortion this year? What do you think? So, typically, um, what you say, your, your sense is correct. Um, Typically, when you start dealing with hot-button issues, uh, what I've learned over the years being down the General Assembly, they like to do that on the off-election years um, because it takes a lot of time and energy, not only within the Assembly of Discussions, but going out to the community and, and talk about it. During the election cycle, these bills still get introduced, um, as they do every year, but they might not come out of committee. Um, 
so it, it you don't have the uh, the offset of trying to explain these difficult bills in your community, as well as going out there and market yourself for a re-election, if you will, sometimes. It doesn't mean that the session is easier, because um, the bills are still heard in committee and it still gets out there, but the likelihood of them coming to the floor and passing, or the likely, likelihood of them coming to the floor of both chambers and passing and going to the governor um, isn't that as much as it is when it's off years. Um, that's kind of a general statement. You had mentioned one specific topic, the, like the, medical, the marijuana thing, and if you recall, or uh, maybe you, you haven't, um, at the beginning of the year, the very first day, the president went up on the uh, on his uh, bench and he spoke about you know, what he'd like to see happen in the upcoming year, and the Speaker of the House got up on his uh, bench and spoke right. he'd like to come up for the year, and the president on the Senate side was not in favor of bringing the legalization of marijuana, recreational marijuana to the floor. Um, that kind of sets the pace. It doesn't mean that we don't have the discussions on it. It doesn't mean that we don't look at it. Obviously, in politics, things can change in a moment. But when I heard that, I didn't think that we'd be voting on the floor regarding medical um, recreational marijuana this year. Um, but as I told you a couple of years ago, this is a train that's coming. Um, I still think it's something that somebody's going to really look at and push hard. Um, obviously, the governor's still in favor of this, so um, we'll see. So that was a long-winded answer to your very short question. No, it was uh, well done. Um, so I don't want to simplify the legislative process, but there's a big difference uh, when a bill is introduced about uh, having a committee uh, have hearings on it and then bringing it to a floor vote. And apparently that's what the Senate president controls. If it doesn't get to the floor, it doesn't get uh, voted on, it doesn't become law. That's correct. And, and recall, um, you know, just, you know, um, Politics 101 or, you know, um, American Government 101, for something to become a law, it actually has to pass five different areas. It has to pass the committee. Uh, we'll start with, say, introducing the Senate side. It has to pass the committee on the Senate side, the floor on the Senate side, committee on the House side, the floor on the uh, House side, and then the governor has to sign it. So there is five areas that it can get derailed. Um, and for it to pass, it has to, if it comes, if it goes through the Senate and it goes to the House side, and they change a word or two on it that, that creates a certain meaning, it has to come back to the Senate side. So you add additional um, pieces to the process. So it's, um, it's cumbersome in a way um, when you think of it like that. But on the other hand, it, it's the beauty of American government. Um, I say this all the time. The beauty of American government is everybody has a say. The frustration of American government is everybody has a say because it can slow down the process um, when you're trying to get something done, what you think should be done a little bit more quickly. Um, well, that so. five-step process is, uh, I mean, we had a great example of it uh, this week on the um, on the minimum wage. I remember it being introduced, and I remember uh, the House uh, hearings, and, and then they introduced their version, and then the Senate uh, introduced its version, and then I guess it got... Um, uh, modified in the House or something, and you guys finally um, took up the House version and passed it the other day. So, uh, is that part of the five-step process? It is. It is. Now, here's the last piece, and when you talk about the politics of, of, of government, we may pass the House version, and they may pass the Senate version, 
um, of a bill. That means it's passed you know, both the House floor and the Senate floor. But they don't typically transmit it to the governor right away um, because that, as the session goes on, sometimes, as you know, communication can break down between the chambers. Um, and then some, you know, well, you, you're not going to pass this bill, so we're not going to pass your bill, or we're not going to transmit it to the governor, or whatever the case may be. So things get bogged down because of political reasons at the end. Um, whether that's a way it should be or not, it's just some of the reality of it all. So even though, like you were talking about the minimum wage bill, uh, we passed the House side, it's probably still held in the Senate and not being transmitted to the governor's desk as of, as of right now. So that's, for sure. so that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the decision to move the uh, the bill to the governor for signature. Who makes mm -hmm. that decision? Uh, the speaker and the governor and the uh, president. And then sometimes, I mean, you know, I talk like like uh, how they put that about you know, the inside game of, of uh, politics. Sometimes the governor doesn't want something transmitted to him or her, you know, because um, they don't want to deal with the. Uh, the consequences are, are what will happen out there in the uh, general public. Um, so it doesn't get transmitted. There's a lot of pieces come into play here, Raj. Senator, before sometimes we... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, sometimes things don't get done on the merit all the time, um, and that's unfortunate. Sometimes politics gets in the way. Um, we're going to take a break uh, here on, on our program. Do you have... Uh, you, I, I know that... When you're at a conference, uh, either this is a coffee, a coffee break, or you're missing something uh, going downstairs in your hotel. I don't know what's uh, going my on. First, my, my first session starts at nine o'clock, uh -huh. so I have some time. Okay, we'll be back with uh, more of uh, of uh, Senator. Oh, uh, so so the. So the bill on minimum wage is still out there. And um, um, so we can't uh, say that uh, there's going to be a new minimum wage until the governor signs it. I can think that's where we are. Yeah, I don't know if it was transmitted to the governor. I don't. I suspect that hasn't. I right. remember hearing it when I was on the floor that day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I can follow up and let you know next week. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't recall it being transmitted to the governor. I think so. I can. Uh, I can get that one on my own. Hey, we'll be back okay. in, in a, mo a moment if I can put you on hold, and uh, we'll uh, we'll chat about a few other things in the uh, in the Senate in a moment. All right. Sure. Thank you, Roger Pickard. State Senator on our live line <clears throat> doing our uh, Friday interview, and we have a few more uh, questions for him. Uh, but we also uh, want to remind you that uh, there's some great places for eating here in Woonsocket. Did you know that? Well, I know that. That's for sure. Hi, my name is Sandy, and I've been a waitress at the Brosta House for over 30 years. We still serve our famous family-styled chicken seven days a week, along with many other items on our extensive menu. Or come try one of our weekly dinner specials. Can't stay to eat? Our entire menu is available for takeout, including our family packs. Our menu is also available on our website, www.brosta.com. House, ri .com. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, Sandy uh, also reminds us, uh, and the rest of the crew at the Brosta House, that we have Lenten specials available every Friday. And yes, we'll be open St. Patrick's Day serving corned beef specials, including corned beef and cabbage. But do enjoy their delicious all-you-can-eat roasted and roasted chicken. You can get eight, 12, or 16-piece chicken family packs, including pasta and fries. Or try their 10- and 15-piece boneless chicken packs served with mashed potatoes and pasta. And uh, seafood entrees, uh, entrees, seafood entrees, 
and other daily specials are also available. And the Lenten specials today, Friday. The name of the place? The Broster House. Do check it out. We're going to check out uh, Mr. Uh, Jeff Gamashi is in the studio. What are you uh, going to talk about, Mr. Gamashi? I'm Harkin Shop Supermarkets, their new sale that starts today. They're bringing only the best for your family. That's the title of this week's sale, celebrating 101 years of service to the Blackstone Valley Parking Shop, Main Street, Blackstone. This week's deals include bone-in, center-cut pork chops, only $1.99 a pound in USDA prime certified Angus beef. That top round roast, so good, so fresh. Just two ninety nine a pound. The buy one get one deal for this week is round stew beef or stir fry. USDA prime certified Angus beef round stew beef or stir fry. If you buy one package at regular price, you get your second package of equal or lesser value free. If you're looking for chicken, it's Grade A chicken tenderloins on sale this week. They are dollar ninety nine a pound. Grade A whole chickens just dollar. 49 a pound, part of the great meat deals you'll find this week. Also, breakfast sausage links from Johnsonville, two for five bucks right now. Park and Shop, Main Street, Blackstone. Just when the holidays are over, and I think there's nothing more to think about financially, but then February and March always get me thinking about how I got to get my taxes done, get my finances organized, my receipts, my deductions, and I don't just want to walk into one of those stores because that seems not very personal. So I start thinking about getting my tax return done by a CPA. Just saying it makes me feel better. They have all those years of experience. Most have a master's in finance or accounting. That's the kind of knowledge I need for my taxes. Yes, I'm going to a CPA this year. That makes me feel a whole lot more relaxed. With a CPA, you get a professional with a higher education, more years of training, and a greater breadth of knowledge than the rest of the pack. This tax season, don't trust your finances to anyone less. Hire the best. A CPA. Few prepare as rigorously. Brought to you by Care Kasha, certified public accountants and business consultants. Call 732-8900 for your appointment. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. The panel is uh, Roger and uh, Senator uh, Roger. A lot of Rogers in Woonsocket. Boy, have we learned that though, over the years, huh? Yeah. Yeah, there actually used to be a comedy team called Roger and Roger. Um, <laughs> I actually saw them in, uh, one time in Boston. They were pretty funny. All right. Uh, where are you in South Carolina? What town are you in? Charlotte. You're in Charlotte. Charlotte. All right. And uh, nice to uh, have you on the phone with us. You've got a nice, uh, clear um, uh, reception here. And so uh, oh, we're, we're going to ask you about... Um, a question that really doesn't have much to do with the Senate, I've been told over the years, it's the budget, right? Um, I, I understand that everything that, uh, that happens in the budget is fashioned over on the House side, and the only thing that you guys have to do is approve it or disapprove it. Is that oversimplifying it? A I love bit, to oversimplify uh, things. <laughs> yeah, a, li- a little bit, but not, uh, not totally inaccurate. <laughs> so, yes, so... No, um, well, let me tell you why I'm bringing it up. I'm bringing it up okay. be- because uh, here we are doing probably our sixth or seventh interview with legislators, and they have identified, and I'm asking you now, they have identified the budget is the biggest issue in the General Assembly, uh, uh, shall we say, agenda for this year. 
Is that, fa- is that factor correct? No, no, every, every year. Every year the budget, that is absolutely true. Every year the budget is the number one piece of legislation that we do because you can pass any policy that you want. You can pass any program that you want. But if you don't fund it, what good is it? Um, so they're, they're not incorrect. The budget is the biggest issue every year. And going back to what you were speaking about earlier, um, even though the House and the Senate hold, uh, we both hold hearings on the budget. The Senate holds their hearings. The House holds their hearings. The budget gets generated out of the House. So they fashion the budget um, once they've, they've vetted it out, not without any input from the Senate. Um, we, we do speak with them often um, and talk about what priorities should be um funded, uh, how some of the funding should go, but they have the ultimate say. Um, and with that being said, they also have the, the ultimate headache because when it hits the floor on the House side, um, they get to vote on it article by article, and they can change it uh, back and forth. They can um, augment it. They can add things, delete things. It can be a very um, grueling type of time. I've said when I was on the House side, I remember we had a five-day battle over the budget. Coming to the Senate side, once the House has gone through all that, all those deliberations, um, if we change the budget, as I was talking about the process before, it would go back to the House side. And it could get into this political ping pong, if you will, and not get passed, which is not good for anybody. So typically when it comes to the Senate side, it's been vetted, it's been heard, um, it's been agreed upon. So when it hits the floor of the Senate, we vote on the entire action, one, once up or down, and it, it's done. Um, with that being said, there has been twice, because I told you before, um, sometimes politics gets in the way of merits of things going. And a couple of years ago, the president and the speaker were not getting along. There was an argument over something. So we did change the budget. It went back to the House. And if you recall, the House was closed down and didn't pass the budget. So what occurs then is the current fiscal budget just keeps in effect going forward. No new taxes come out, no new additional spendings come out. You just go by what was um, agreed upon the prior fiscal year. And that created all kinds of issues for all the communities in the state, where eventually we had to go back and change uh, change the budget one more time to what it was originally and pass it that way. So um, that's why, if I articulated it correctly, when you say that the House has the most of the power on the budget, yes, it does. Um, it gets really fashioned there first, and when it comes to the Senate, we typically just pass it up or down. All right. So um, so it's not a lot of uh, time expended on, um, on Senate finance uh, on the budget uh, because, well, I guess uh, the, 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 it doesn't seem as important on the Senate side. Well, again, I, I wouldn't go... I want to oversimplify it that way. All right. Um, the, sen- the Senate does spend a lot of time on the budget. Um, not as much time probably as the House does, mm-hmm. but it does. Because, again, we want to make sure that the members on the Senate side understand what's in this budget. Now, there's one thing when somebody talks to you and says, oh, this, this money is going here. But you want to get down into the details. Well, where, where is it going? What's going on? Because if we don't know what's going on... Um, it's going to create all kinds of problems going forward. And I can give you a perfect example. Um, last year, the uh, Department of DSYF, uh, Children, Youth, and Families, came in front of the Senate committee and said, this is what we're proposing in the budget. 
And the members on the committee looked at them and said, this is less than what you had the year before, and you overspent the year before. Now, how can you be telling, coming here and telling us that you're going to spend less and still be able to do the job? And they were adamant they could do it. Well, here they are, a department that's you know, falling apart, overspending. And if you recall, in January, the governor's you know, blamed the legislature for underfunding DCRF when they themselves came in, presented their budget, and said, no, we're fine. Um, so the Senate does dig down into the budget, so we can have an understanding, so we can have deliberations with the House and say, hey, look, did you hear this on your side? This is what we heard on our side. You know, we want to make sure that we're in uh, unison when we move forward with this. So it, it may not be as intense as the House side, but there is a lot of work that the Finance Committee does do on the budget. You may or may not know much about this legislation, uh, but um, actually it's been withdrawn. Do you know Senator uh, Sandra uh, Kano from, uh, from Pawtucket? Does she sit near you? Yeah, I, 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 you're talking about the thing that was in the... Um, the Providence Journal is pointing that piece of legislation? Yes, uh, so at the, the headline is that Rhode Island lawmakers withdraw bill to punish news outlets over reporting. And, um, and here's how the story begins from Channel 12. Uh, Providence Journal covered it, too. Four Senate Democrats have quickly disavowed legislation they introduced, which would restrict Rhode Island news outlets' freedom to report stories, calling it Stop Guilt by, uh, uh, by Accusation Act. And then the next uh, paragraph, Senator Kano and three colleagues, and I don't think you're one of them. <laughs> no, <laughs> three, I did not You're not a progressive Democrat, are you? <laughs> I'm just checking. I want to see if you uh, changed in the last year or so. I, th I think I'm more in the moderate range, if you would. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, three of her colleagues filed the legislation Wednesday. A summary says it would preclude the media from engaging in defamation in kind through selective reporting on cases and controversies that cultivate false narratives. Anyway, it's been withdrawn. I was going to find out uh, what you knew about it because we have an email that says, does Senator Picard know much about this legislation? You're on. Uh, and the answer was no. All I know is what I read this morning. Um, so your recap is what I know. Um, you know listening, uh, reading what some of the legislators had written in there, I can understand their perspective, meaning sometimes accusations get put out there, um, and that's fine. I mean, you, you want you want you want the media to be out there and scrutinize everything, and that's fine. Um, and accusations are accusations, and you have to deal with them. However, once an accusation is made and there's follow through on it, and you find out that sometimes these accusations are false, that doesn't get reported, and you kind of feel like you've been slighted, if you will. Um, going back, I said, well, who was it? Was it the Duke? Um, players that were accused of um, of rape, if, if you call Roger, and they yes. went through this whole thing, and ultimately they found out that it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if they never found out the end, you know, these, these, these kids' reputations would be uh, ruined. So I think that's what the thought process was behind it. Well, anything else, once you put legislation in, it opens up a whole um, array of what, what, what if. You could be attacking this, you could be attacking that. You're not allowing, if the media doesn't follow through, should they put the initial story in, then you're restricting what they should be saying, and that's restricting you know, the media, and we don't want to do that. So, um, 
I just went off on a tangent. I lost my whole well, train of thought. Well, what was the question you asked me? You don't have to, you don't have to worry because I was, was going to pick up on it. This is uh, an issue that I guess uh, the news media has to deal with. Like, for instance, if somebody is accused of, of doing something and it's reported, uh, let's say a, a sexual uh, abuse case, it's reported in the, in the newspaper, your picture is in there, and the accusations are there. All right, so now it's reported, everybody knows about it. And then when you get to your court uh, hearing and uh, you present evidence and the case is dismissed. I mean, right. you're not even found innocent, it's just dismissed. So at that point, Yes, it's the responsibility of the news media to report that the case was dismissed and that this person's name was cleared. The problem that I think the news media will say is that the judicial system, the court system, uh, doesn't send a news release to the news media saying that so-and-so, um, who was accused of this crime, has been acquitted of this crime for the following reasons. And I don't see why any news media wouldn't report that somebody who's been charged and been cleared, they wouldn't report that. But you have to find out that they got acquitted in the first place to report it. And I think uh, that's an issue that could be worked out between the news media and, for instance, the court uh, clerks, uh, because there are a lot of people acquitted or found innocent. And uh, we've got to find out a way to find that information to report it. I guess that's the yeah, issue. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, courts don't move at, you know, past <laughs> speed either. You know? <laughs> yeah. it, could be, it, it could be, you know, six months to two years down the road before mm -hmm. something that gets done. You know, by then, everybody goes, what was that story again? Um, no, I get it. I get it. So I can understand the I, the thought process, if you will, but um, I think they did the right thing. Though. They put it in. They found out that it was a lot bigger than what you expected, and that's why we have the vetting process down there. And then, okay, at that point, it's like, look, well, let's just pull it out. This was this wasn't probably the smartest way to uh, try, uh, go after this um this issue. So, Roger, be, be, as we run out of time here, I'm going to ask you, like, one of these uh, questions that have, like, a million different answers uh, to it, because um, there are all kinds of bills out there. But uh, let's try to focus in on on, uh, on Northern Rhode Island, Greater Woonsocket issues. Has anybody asked you to do anything um, about uh, legislation uh, that, um, that might have passed? Or, or legislation that you can introduce that would help Woonsocket, let's say, aid to education. What's going on? Yeah, so um, I've, I've spoken to both mayors. So I remember one time I heard uh, Representative Newberry on your uh, on your radio saying that sometimes it's not what you get past, sometimes it's what you stop from getting past. Um, and tying this into your comment about the budget, the budget, the budget is the number one thing. That is the number one issue that faces both the communities I, I deal with. In Cumberland, uh, their uh, educational funding has a $1.8 million hole in it because of the way the, the, the funding formula is set up. So it's an issue that we're working on. Uh, the distressed community um, monies that the governor wants to curtail somewhat, it would be disastrous to hometown of Winsocket, not to mention educational aid there. Uh, there is legislation that has been introduced uh, on behalf of the city of Winsocket, um, speaking with the mayor. So, and some of the city council people dealing with taxation for housing um, developments that get this break where they don't pay necessarily the, the straight property tax on the housing. They pay a certain percentage of the rent that's um, paid and um, increasing that percentage from like 8% to 10% on certain pieces of um, um, buildings or developments going forward that would help the community. 
So it's things like that um, right now that's taking uh, main stage, uh, main focus for me, if you will. Um, there's some educational piece of uh, legislation that's in dealing with, um, again, dealing with the issues of what happens with school days off, that type of thing, how it affects attendance. Um, but that's some of the focus that people up here have asked me to put legislation in on their behalf. Um, but that's about it. Nothing, nothing, there wasn't a lot of requests this year beyond that, if you will. That $348,000, though, of, of money for distressed communities, that's the, you know, on, a, on a smaller budget like a city budget like Woonsocket. Uh, it, it, I, I mean, we, we have a big budget, but 348000 is a good chunk of, of, of change. And I'm just wondering, how does a senator like yourself affect um, keeping that, uh, that money flowing to us uh, uh, because it's so important to us? So this is what, this is what when you asked me about the, uh, the Senate Finance Committee not having a, a lot of teeth. But they do. And this is where I put the pressure on, you know, go to them, explain the issues that we're facing. We're fortunate to have uh, Senator Mori on the um, Finance Committee. That's a big plus for the city of Winsocket there now fighting this and then you put pressure on the leadership you know you go to the president you go to the majority leader and the minority leader say hey look our community can't do without this money it needs to be there so when we're in our deliberations with the house this is something that's going to be very important to us um and we need to make sure it's there so it's that type of effect that um, um interaction if you will that helps create the um create the um the need saying that we have not create the need the solution for the need Look, we need this put back there. What do we need to do to get this back into our budget? Senator Picard, thank you for chatting uh, with us uh, today. And we'll have you probably on one more time on this uh, rotation when we uh, get closer to the end of the uh, General Assembly session. And um, we'll find out uh, just whether, in fact, we could uh, preserve that 348 or not. We'll find out. Very good. Thank you. And uh, have a good rest of the uh, weekend conference uh, down in uh, Charlotte. Uh, you're in North Carolina, huh? Right, uh, North Carolina. Okay. Yep. All right. Have a good, uh, good weekend. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye. Senator Roger Pickard on our live line here on WNRI. Thank you, Senator Pickard. Rice Dairy Farms milk, two percent whole milk and skim milk, and it's fresh every day. And we're open seven days a week, so whenever you want it, it's available. Fresh from the cows, milk daily from 3 to 5 p.m. Wright's Dairy Farm, home of great ice cream and, of course, our flavored milk, including that delicious chocolate milk. Come on in to Wright's Dairy Farm for our fresh dairy products. Open seven days a week, 200 Woonsocket Hill Road, North Spitfield. Great, um, great chicken dinners this weekend. Right there at River Falls uh, Restaurant, you know, the, the Mog Lock News, uh, Birch Chicken and Family Style Chicken. But don't forget this coming Monday, we're open on Mondays at River Falls. Dinner for two Italian Mondays for $39, including a bottle of wine, a pitcher of sangria, a pitcher of beer, two Italian entrees, dessert, and some Italian soup or a nice salad preceding it. You can't beat it for $39. Served from 3 to 9 p.m. every Monday at River Falls Restaurant. That's it for the Upfront program. Bye-bye, everybody.